Welcome back to the Fix the Money podcast. I'm now connected to Peter Saint-Ange. He's an economist at the Heritage Foundation, a Twitter aficionado and a recent YouTuber. How are you doing, Peter? Great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've, I've, seen, your, I've, seen, your, um, I've seen your YouTube videos and you're very, very busy these days. You're publishing one every day, basically. Yeah, well, I, I, I love doing it. I would publish more, but I've got a full-time job, so I usually do it before work. You're doing very short clips, but very important stuff because you're mm -hmm. talking about hyper-Bitcoinization, you're talking about banking crisis, you're talking about the dollar losing reserve currency status, you're talking about hyper-inflation. I mean, where do we even start? Do you have anything very vanilla to talk about? <laughs> well, you know, I keep telling my wife I'm going to do a video on refrigerator space. You know, I have a pet theory that um, refrigerator space is worth roughly a thousand dollars per cubic foot because you have to buy smaller items in order to fit in a smaller refrigerator. And we keep joking that, you know, this is going to be my alternative career is that I'm going to do little silly how-to videos, things like that. Like, how, what's the best way to arrange your garage? But anyway, I'm waiting for the world to uh, stop breaking itself, and then, and then I can do uh, sillier content at that point. Okay, excellent. So we, should, we, we, just, we, we go, can now talk about the world breaking. Well, uh, right, but, but that's the all clear, okay? When I start doing the videos about uh, garages and refrigerators, then it means uh, the world is healing at that point. So this will be the signal. I just hope that you get you get uh, you know your your audience is not gonna be is not gonna be disappointed. <laughs> How I mean, yeah. talking about hyperinflation, talking about de-dollarization, yep. hyperbitcoinization, those are pretty you know still pretty hot topics. Um, maybe yeah. let's start with with de-dollarization because I've seen this hit the the mainstream media these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's astounding. And this is something that's really been going on uh, really since the beginning, since Bretton Woods. Um, Bretton Woods, in a sense, was the high point of America's domination uh, of the global economy, but also Amer it was the high point of America's power, right? America's ability to force other countries to do what it wanted. Uh, and part of that power, it converted into a uh, privilege of, you know, selling green pieces of paper to other countries in exchange for, you know, toasters, luxury cars, copper mines, all kinds of things. And a lot of foreigners have not been very pleased about this. Uh, but the irony here is that this has also not benefited the American people. And I think that's an important point because a lot of Americans, especially on the right, are under the impression that reserve currency status is something that's very good for the American people. It is absolutely not. And the reason is that the benefits, you know, having reserve currency status means that foreigners are willing to buy a bunch of green paper that you print. And so that benefit accrues to whomever is printing the green paper, right? It means that the money printers, meaning the Federal Reserve and commercial banks in the U.S., they are the beneficiaries of fractional reserve, uh, I'm sorry, of uh, reserve currency status. And so what that means is after, what, 80 years of reserve currency status, the American people, if anything, they've, they've probably net suffered. Uh, they have to pay for, you know, the propping up NATO and, and all of these other benefits that are sort of included by the American government as a package deal with um, adopting the U.S. as your reserve uh, currency. So they, you know, the American people have actually been paying for this, have been playing, paying for it in treasure and blood, the many, many wars that I think have been at least partly motivated uh, by, you know, protecting America's empire and its uh, influence over other countries. But all of those benefits, the influence over countries, the ability to print money, all of that has passed through the American people up to principally the bankers, the uh, Federal Reserve, and then, of course, the many, many government contractors who feed off of the bribes that America pays to other countries in order to maintain the U.S. dollar. Here in Europe, we consider the American still, you know, turbo capitalist, um, you know, cutthroat. But in, the, but in actuality, there's never been a state apparatus that has been as big as the American is today, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, part of that's propaganda, of course. Um, the European left, uh, you know, because there's a uh, contempt among many Europeans for America in general, then, you know, of course, they're competent marketers, and so they're going to take advantage of that and try to paint anything that they don't like as American. Uh, you know, in fact, if we, the sort of modern Bismarckian totalitarian state, um, you know, it was Bismarckian, <laughs> you know, it was sort of founded in Prussia, uh, but it, it was really popularized through its application in the U.S., right? And so if we look at modern Europe with the wokeism and the, and the pronouns and all this garbage, all of these things are perfect copies of what comes out of America, uh, in many ways, they're, you know, they're sort of the star pupil who exceeds the teacher in their perfection of these dark arts. Uh, from our perspective, uh, Europe looks like a ridiculous puppet version where they take on every left-wing uh, you know, crazy idea and just take it to its logical extreme. But of course, the left in Europe doesn't do that, right? You know, they don't say, ah, pronouns are American. No, they want to represent that as some, you know, universal truth that science has discovered because they know that, you know, they, they want to piggyback on the sort of inherent anti-Americanism um, that Europeans have. Well, I can tell you that, I mean, Europe is very, has different countries, right, and different cultures, sure. and, it's, and it's, it's hard to, to pinpoint what, one Europe. But from my point of view, actually, I mean, I know what you mean. We do import, we do import a lot of stuff, cultural stuff from the U.S. Not only music and films. You know, our music looks mm -hmm. like your music. Our films look like your your films. Um, and yes, political correctness, absolutely. The voc the vocary. I mean, not that much, honestly. I mean, pronouns another thing, as far as I it, can say. It it certainly depends on the country, right? So Britain. I guess what I have in mind is the British, who who uh, have taken many things to a clownish level. Um, yeah, that's true. But but your wider point is accurate, right? Which is that Europe, you know, there there are many countries in Europe, right? And socially uh, or in terms of policy, uh, Italy or uh, <laughs> Hungary are very very different than you yeah. know, Sweden. Uh, and England or something. So, I mean, of course, you know, there's a wide variety. Now, of course, that's also true in the United States, right? So California, Texas, uh, Wyoming are extremely different places. And, you know, when, when we speak of Americans, depending on the topic, we're, we're sort of stereotyping with one kind of American or another kind, right? You know, if you say, ah, Americans love guns, well, you're clearly talking about one type of American. If you say Americans love pronouns, you're absolutely talking about a different group of Americans. And so, you know, this is true in both directions. But I think at any rate, if you sort of average, you know, if you compare uh, the U.S. to countries across Europe, in most ways, I think it would be about the middle of the pack. Uh, it's not as, you know, socially conservative as Hungary. Uh, it, it, it is, you know, probably less free market than a place like Sweden. Um, so, right, it really depends on the country. It's interesting. I've seen today, I've seen, I've seen a headline that um, Italy is not going to ban lab-grown meat in order to save their, their food heritage. It's an interesting angle. I've never that seen that before. That is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, and that goes to the point that, you know, each country has local special interests and, you know, they're going to have various goals, right? So, for example... Uh, in France or Italy, you have a very strong food lobby. It's more or less a guild, and it has a lot of public sympathy. Farmers in most countries have public sympathy, but I think that's, that's abnormally high uh, in countries like Italy and France, where they take a lot of pride in the culinary background. Uh, and so those special interests can sometimes point the country in a direction that you wouldn't necessarily predict, just based on the economics or the sort of broader um, incentives involved. Could you talk a little bit about the everyday symptoms of um, the exorbitant privilege of the money printing of having reserve currency status b besides wars, you know, like, is there anything that Americans can see in their everyday lives that impacts them negatively about this? Yeah, I think, um, you know, broadly speaking, Americans haven't, you know, aside from uh, the wars and the bribes paid out the foreigners, which which is substantial, 
uh, bribes like foreign aid or participation in international organizations, things like this. Uh, aside from that, I think that most of the benefits are not really apparent uh, to most Americans, again, because they pass through uh, and because they've been going on so long. And I think that the main impact day to day is going to be if the United States loses that reserve currency status. Right, so the problem is that the way that the world is today is that very gradually over an 80-year period, something like two or three times more U.S. dollars have been printed than are needed by the U.S. economy. Okay, so the U.S. economy is about 25 trillion. The amount of U.S. dollars used in international trade is in the range of 20 to 30 trillion per year. And then we have an unknown amount of savings uh, overseas. You know, in many third world countries, richer people will tend to save their money in U.S. dollars. Um, and so if we put those three batches together, and again, nobody knows what these numbers are. Literally, the Federal Reserve types up papers where they wonder uh, how many dollars exist in the world. Nobody knows. Um, but if we put those together, I guess it's two to three times more dollars are in existence than are needed. So one of those three is circulating in the U.S. And of course, it's not needed, but um, we're compelled to use it because our government has a currency monopoly like, like most countries. Uh, so let's call that sustainable demand <laughs> in, until the government Bitcoin, uh, you know, switches to Bitcoin uh, or gold. And then the problem is those other two to three America's worth of dollars that are floating around the world. So currently they're stable, right? Some of them are with uh, rich Mexicans um, in their savings. Uh, some of them are being used for Saudi, you know, oil trade, things like this. So at that point, it's stable and people don't notice the problem. The issue is if, if the dollar starts getting weaker or if there's geopolitical reasons why countries don't want to trade using the U.S. dollar, Okay, then you get a reduction in the demand for the U.S. dollar. That means the U.S. dollar starts to go down in value. Once it starts to go down into value, there's a whole cascade of dollar holders who start reacting to that. Okay, so for example, Japanese banks might have a bunch of dollars that they're holding in the form of treasury bonds. They may be perfectly content with that. They can sleep easy. But if the U.S. dollar starts falling because Saudi Arabia is not doing trade anymore, using dollars, then the Japanese banker is now concerned, okay, because his, his uh, assets are losing 2 3%, whatever. So he will start moving out of it. If he starts moving out of it, the next one and the next one. So you can get this cascade effect where a significant portion of, that, of those dollars are no longer wanted. They're selling them onto a market for something else. And at that point, you can start to get quite a big move you know, if we compare the, so the GDP of the United States and that of Europe plus Britain are roughly the same size. And the amount of euros held as reserve currency is more like three times higher than dollars, right? And so if the demand profile of the U.S. dollar resembles the demand profile of the euro, where the vast majority of euro demanded is demanded either for EU citizens to save or for transactions happening inside the EU, right? If the dollar starts to look like the euro, then we could see a very substantial reduction um, in dollar demand worldwide, which would lead to the price dropping, which could then, if that's happening fast enough, you could even get it, uh, you know, it could overshoot the euro. Uh, people could temporarily exit the dollar because it's moving so quickly. You said it's, uh, that the euro is three times um, the size of the dollar. I think you meant three times the size of the European economy, right? That's because that's how you compared it. The economy of the U.S. and Europe are roughly similar. Uh, the percent of dollars that are held or the, the dollar share of foreign exchange reserves is about 60%, and for the euro, it's more like 20 or 25%. But what you're saying is that the euro has less demand than the dollar, and if the dollar goes to the demand that the euro has, we have a Correct. problem. That is what you're saying. Yep, exactly. Where does the demand go if that happens? Right, a small portion of it would go over to uh, you know, non-currency 
Um, well, it could be small, it could be large, but um, some of it would go to things like gold or Bitcoin as currency substitutes uh, or other commodities, silver, uh, oil. <laughs> Uh, China is moving a lot of its dollars functionally into oil and into other commodities. It's doing this by long-term purchase contracts with African countries, for example. Uh, so some of it can be moved over into other things like that. Some of it could be just moved into other assets. Uh, for example, a country could move their dollar reserves into a sovereign wealth fund, and then that sovereign wealth fund could buy equities worldwide. Uh, you know, there will typically be political pressures to keep that money in that country. So it may be some sort of domestic uh, sovereign fund. Singapore does that, for example. It's called Temasek. And they take a lot of the uh, accumulated pensions in the state pension scheme, and then they invest that in Singaporean-based companies. They invest it worldwide, but they're, whether it's public relations or whether they're obligated to, they disproportionately invest in Singaporean companies. So those those monies could go into things like that. Uh, and, you know, of course, probably the lion's share of it uh, is going to go into other competing currencies. Uh, why do I think the lion's share? Well, because the money is already in currencies. There's something about currencies that that piece of money likes, that that, that, that piece of wealth likes being in a currency. And so they'll basically look down the list and say, okay, well, if the dollar is in trouble, if the dollar is having problems, then maybe I should diversify into some of these other currencies. The other, the most uh, logical candidates would be the euro, the Japanese yen, Canadian, Australian, uh, Swiss franc, uh, sort of relatively stable currencies where the central banks are not much worse uh, or in some cases better. Um, actually, I think in general, aside from Britain, uh, most major central banks are somewhat better uh, in terms of controlling inflation than the Federal Reserve. Uh, I don't think China will actually pick up much of the demand. Um, the Chinese government has a couple of issues, which is that um, their policies are very, very hard to predict. Uh, the Chinese government has goals in life that are unrelated to, <laughs> to inflation or to interest rate stability. Uh, for example, the you know during the COVID lockdowns, China could sustain that much much longer because it can throw you in prison for 30 years if you have a problem with it. Uh, I think China just scares investors um, as you know as long as Chinese policy is so unpredictable. I don't think it stands a very good chance of being a reserve currency. I personally, if I had to park my money somewhere, I would look at the Japanese yen before I looked at the Chinese yuan. Uh, China is just too unknown. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, China, you know, one of the major problems with the dollar is that the U.S. government weaponizes it to use it in proxy wars or as a tool of controlling other countries. We're seeing that at the moment uh, with Russia. And China very much does that. <laughs> I, I, I expect they do it more than the United States. Uh, and so I think China basically, it has the worst of the dollar uh, and, you know, an almost third world level of predictability of its central bank policies. So until those are fixed, which I don't think is happening anytime soon, uh, I think that most Chinese uh, yuan demand is going to be in some form uh, China paying countries to conduct trade in the Chinese yuan. And I suppose you could do that. It's quite expensive. Um, but, you know, they could give discounts if uh, countries trade in yuan and just kind of hope that everybody gets used to it and stays with it. Fix the Money is brought to you by 21Bitcoin, the easy way to buy, sell, save, and send Bitcoin. 21Bitcoin is a Bitcoin-only app, not an exchange. There's no distractions. There's an individual savings plan, very low fees, first-class personal support, and a German bank account. Based in the Austrian Alps, it's available now throughout Europe. Download now using the code FIXTHEMONEY to get up to 20% off your fees over there on 21bitcoin.app. Not your keys, not your coins. You need a hardware wallet signing device. Check out the Bitbox O2. Swiss made, secure, beautiful, open source, Tor support, Bitcoin only, and an all around outstanding product. Use the code FIXTHEMONEY on shiftcrypto.ch to get 5% off. That's the Bitbox O2. Fix the money.
it's interesting because we have this current craze about you know uh, a China-led new world order, a BRICS world order, maybe even a BRICS basket of uh, uh, like a big BRICS currency. Putin is talking about a BRICS currency. The Chinese are talking like literally saying they are ready to take over the world order. Um, of course, it's hyperbole. Of course, we've heard that before. And of course, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But you are basically saying even if the, the, the dollar, you know, um, loses its status, um, it goes to another Western currency. It goes to the euro or the yen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's more likely. Um, if China or Russia were proposing a BRICS union that was uh, based on like a gold-backed currency, okay, uh, in other words, if they were actually bringing some real improvement to it, then uh, that I would take extremely seriously. In fact, that I would say, okay, <laughs> that's the end. <laughs> um, why? Because the inflation dynamics of the, in other words, the attractiveness as a store of value of that kind of a currency would be so much better. Um, and we know this. I mean, Switzerland, for example, about 15 years ago uh, in the European bank uh, financial crisis, sovereign debt crisis, the Swiss franc was, was uh, appreciating so dramatically that the Swiss authorities actually stepped in and spent massive amounts. I think... Uh, possibly more than the GDP. I mean, it, it was a tremendous amount of money that was spent in order to weaken the Swiss franc. And so that, what this tells us is that any country that has a good inflation policy that is credible, uh, Switzerland is no longer gold-backed, but nonetheless, the world in general trusts the Swiss National Bank uh, more than other countries. I don't know that they do after Credit Suisse, but at any rate, um, at that time, it was true. And so the sort of takeaway lesson here is that if, if Russia is coming in with a gold-backed ruble, and it's really gold-backed, not this sort of games they've been playing with that. Uh, that I would take extremely seriously. Uh, in this case, it looks to me like a Warsaw Pact style. A bunch of countries get together and give each other discounts. And uh, if I'm Brazil, why do I join one over the other? I would keep one foot in each, and I would, I would take advantage of the Chinese subsidies uh, because for China it's a prestige issue, and so they're willing to pay me to use their stupid uh, currency. Uh, yes, I would take that money and uh, thank them and let them uh, get on their stage and parade about. Uh, but meanwhile, I would conduct other trade in whatever currency made sense. And at the moment, for most trade that Brazil engages in, uh, the most liquid currencies are going to be currently the U.S. dollar. And if something happens to the dollar, they would most likely be the euro. It's interesting because I, I have the soft spot for the euro, right? Because because yeah. it was it was founded as somewhat of a neutral possible successor to the dollar, a supranational currency that is not beholden to one country. That's the theory. I'm talking about the theory here, right? right. And, and, and it also holds, I mean, the Eurozone holds about 12,000 tons of gold, which it marks to market four times a year on the, on the balance sheet of the Euro system. Um, but right now, the Euro doesn't look like any um, actual, you know, alternative to the dollar, especially not to the Chinese and the uh, and the Russians because of the censorship of the Russian um, currency reserves. Well, uh, yeah, which was an amazing uh, own goal uh, by the United States. Well, I would argue that your, your affection for the euro is misplaced, <laughs> that what you're describing, a currency that is not beholden to any government, is not at all the euro. Uh, the euro is a uh, prostituted version of the Deutschmark. Uh, instead, what you're describing is Bitcoin I know. or gold. I know, I know, but but that's why that's why I mean I've I've spent so much time on that damn euro that I still <laughs> that I still that I still um, you've been brainwashed. I have. Well, I have. I, 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 I did like a deep dive on the whole history of the euro, and the euro for me still within forget forget Bitcoin for a second here, within the system that we have, it's still the most ambitious project to get away from Triffitt's dilemma, right? So the idea that one country gives one country is does the, the reserve currency because if we even if we go to a gold-backed ruble or, or yuan or whatever we still have one country maybe there will be a BRICS version but it's very hard to see that so so well, that's the, yeah. yes well but 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 the EU is very much one country it's one entity you don't want to fetishize the notion of a country per se uh, the question is do you have a group in charge and you have a politburo uh, in the EU very much, and it behaves a lot like a country. The only distinction is that it can ignore voters. 
It is a debased country. It's true. And they call them commissar. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, I, I live it every day. I live it every day, you know. But it, and it's very, it's very hard to understand what's going on because you have the EU, but then you also have the actual countries doing stuff, right? So next, next right. I think it, it's going to be like in two weeks or something, you have Ursula von der Leyen, who is a German, but she's the head of the EU, and she's going to, to, to China, and she's going there with Macron. So the 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 german faction they they want to get you know de-risk they want to get away from china not totally abandon them but they don't want to be in their pockets right the french the french they they don't like they they, they'd like to you know cuddle up with the chinese and i suspect and i suspect it's because they are pissed off at the americans for the whole russia russia thing right and the whole um situation so so it's very very hard to understand what europe is doing right now yeah, Europe is fascinating. You know, it's a it's it, it's a dysfunctional family. Um, it is. I feel sorry for the European people, um, but you know, in terms of just <laughs> pure entertainment value, uh, the European Union is definitely up there. So, when you talk about hyperinflation, is this something that you are actually worried about right now? Like Balaji is talking about it, or is this something that that you just do some you know thought experiments on? Yeah, so uh, I think the first thing you want to define what we mean by hyperinflation, of course. And, you know, the left enjoys using the definition, I think it's 50% per month, which if you compound that out, it's, it's I don't know, 163,000% or something per year. And I think clearly we're not looking at that kind of a scenario. Uh, there's, however, there's, there, there's other standards. So the uh, IARB, I believe it is, uh, one of the main accounting uh, global accounting organizations, uh, private. Uh, it has a standard for hyperinflation, which is 100% over a three-year period. Okay, so that would be approximately 25% per year. And that strikes me as, you know, if if Jack Dorsey at Twitter is saying hyperinflation or if some regular commenter is saying hyperinflation, uh, I think normally they don't actually mean 163,000% a year. They're talking more like 20, 30% per year. Uh, so if that's the term we're using for hyperinflation, then uh, I think that's certainly possible. Uh, in the U.S., we've had inflation in the low double digits uh, over this past year. Uh, we have a very strange way of counting it um, where they stagger uh, house prices. It's very bizarre. You can read into it if you want, but there is actually a clean number in the U.S., which is called, uh, the Federal Reserve produces it, and it's CPIX shelter. Okay, so that takes out the housing component. And that's been, I think, about 11, maybe 12% at one point. Uh, so, I mean, this is not science fiction at this point. Uh, we've been there very recently. And, of course, that was without a banking crisis. So, at this point, Governments are very aggressively flooding trillions and trillions into the banking system. And the key question is going to be, does that money leak out into the broader economy or does that money stay in the bailout recipients? If it stays in the recipients, then we could get a 2008 style scenario where you know, enormous money printing does not lead to inflation. On the other hand, if the money bleeds out into the wider economy because those banks use it for something, then I think it's quite likely that we get back to doubling digits, 10 11%. And indeed, if that money's coming out, then there's a good chance that we could go even higher, 15 20%. But, but hyperinflation would be a co- complete collapse in the value of the currency. I mean, that's how I see it. It's, it's like well, we lose. That's why I'm saying, right, there are two different definitions. And so if we're using... The, uh, the left's preferred definition of 163,000%, then no, I don't think we're going there anytime soon. Okay. Um, regarding higher inflation, one thing that you, we can see very well here in, in Europe is that the ECB is trying to hike rates, you know, they are trying to, tight, to tighten, but at the same time, we see governments spending like crazy. They are just... 
they, and they are guaranteeing loans and they are doing everything mm -hmm. they can to keep people happy w during the inflation, yep. which of course fumes the inflation. And then you have the, the money that's already circulating, like you said, the money that's already circulating from the pandemic relief programs, right? Um, and, and, and people here, I mean, speci especially here in Austria, people are just realizing, I mean, that basically everybody got money besides me, right? A lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's very similar dynamics in the U.S. where the Federal Reserve is trying to raise rates, they're trying to uh, choke off the economy, and then the fiscal authorities are spending as much as they possibly can. And in a sense, I think the right way to look at it is that you know early during the COVID um, crisis. Governments across the West, in other words, both Europe and the U.S., they only engaged in lockdowns because they were confident that they could finance it through their central banks. And indeed, that's what happened. Uh, if the central banks had not been available, then I don't think that Europe and the U.S. would have done lockdowns because they would have said, we can't afford it. Uh, I was living in Quebec early in the pandemic, and I remember... Uh, tax revenues were projected to fall by 50%. Okay, any government that suddenly loses 50% of its revenue and does not have a central bank has to fire all of the government workers except the policemen. Okay, that would not have happened, I guarantee you. <laughs> so in a sense, the central banks bought the COVID lockdowns. Okay, they allowed governments to uh, give people payments and stimulus checks and enhanced unemployment benefits. And these swung voter opinion to support the lockdowns. Okay, if the lockdowns had actually involved 40% of Europeans not only losing their jobs, but having no money, those lockdowns never would have happened. So that's sort of the original sin here. And because so much money was spent to finance those lockdowns, that then creates, of course, the inflation. Now, at that point, central banks and governments had a choice to make, which was that there was too much spending. How do you, and, and that too much was largely because governments were spending so much. And so you have two ways to react to it. One way is that the central bank goes to the government and says, no more, you've done too much. You've had too much to eat, no more food for you, and perhaps tell the government, we are not only are we not going to buy any more uh, of your government bonds, we're going to start selling them very quickly, okay? And that would have driven up uh, rates. It would have allowed the bond vigilantes to do what they do so well, which is to discipline overspending by governments. And at that point, governments would have been forced to run surpluses in order to soak up all of the new spending because they wouldn't be able to sell bonds. The, the, the bond markets would be oversaturated because these central banks would be selling all of their bonds. So that would have been a happy outcome. Okay, So the government would have expanded during the COVID lockdowns, and then it would have been forced to contract, and the inflation would be fixed. Of course, that's not what they did. That's not what any of them did. And the reason is because governments can replace central bank managers one way or the other. They can pass legislation limiting their powers. Uh, in some cases, they can directly appoint new people. And so they know who the boss is. They're not going to challenge the boss. So they took it out on the dogs. <laughs> they can kick the dog and nothing will happen. They can't kick the boss. They can kick the dogs. So they took it out on us. And so the strategy was let the government do whatever it wants to do, but let's squeeze the people. Let's crush private businesses. Let's crush jobs. That will restrict wage growth. It will restrict price growth. If we choke off the private sector, then we can get to the same destination without having to be rude to our boss. But, I mean, but did we choke it off? I mean, that's what the higher rates do. And that's Absolutely. what the higher rates do. Okay, I, th I thought I thought yep. we we're still in the pandemic. I, I thought we we're still in the pandemic. Ah, the, no, no, the, no. Yes, yes. But now are we today? Yeah. So the the decision which route to go on that was largely made, or the moment for that decision was once inflation really took off. So that was about late two thousand one, uh, twenty one. How long are we still gonna do this? You you think with the higher rates, with the banks failing and stuff? 
Yeah, I think that uh, they're going to keep hiking rates. And the reason is that the central banks know that um, their main sort of outcome is the inflation rate. And that if the inflation rate is too high for too long, they know that there will be political pressure to uh, trim their independence or to reform them in some ways. So they have one goal in life, uh, which is to keep inflation low enough that the people don't get angry. Um, the analogy I like is you have a thief who comes and steals your gasoline every night. Every night you go to sleep and he sneaks in and he, and he siphons out some of the gasoline out of your car. His goal in life is to take a small amount, not to take too much. If he takes too much, then he loses you as a, as a customer. <laughs> he loses you as a victim. He has to go find new victims now. And so in this case, central banks very much want to keep the amount they steal to an acceptable amount. And what, what's acceptable? Well, they observe this in opinion polls. And so you know, they believe that 2% price uh, inflation is acceptable. 2% price inflation is actually more theft, of course, because the economy grows, the population grows. So um, you know, if you're inflicting 2% price inflation on the people, then you're actually uh, inflicting something like 5% of the money supply, which is, which is, that's quite a profitable theft. Uh, that's what, about $1 trillion a year or 1 trillion euro a year in each economy. That's a very, very nice theft. Uh, so they don't want to endanger that. Okay, so I believe that they're going to keep fighting inflation, but they also know that that is causing all kinds of problems for the financial system. And so their solution to that is to do what they did in 2008, which is print up unlimited money to bail out anybody, basically drive as fast as you can if there's something in the way, shoot it with a trillion dollars. And what they're hoping is that like 2008, all of that free money will stay in the banking system again, in which case, is, in which case it does not turn into immediate inflation. It may be inflation later, but immediately it won't be inflation because it's uh, sealed. The, the, the banks are sitting on it as if they buried it uh, in the backyard. And then if that inflation comes out gradually, then, well, they'll have plenty of excuses. They'll, they'll talk about uh, Vladimir Putin or they'll talk about greedy grocery stores or uh, whatever's in the news. I mean, they have a whole, you know, economic industrial complex telling people, gaslighting people about the 2% being mm -hmm. necessary and whatever. Yep. Um, do you think that they know, that the acting people know that they are like, that they're saying, yeah, we need to steal a trillion dollars? Or do they just think that they are doing the right thing? Oh, I think absolutely they think they're doing the right thing. Um, you know, the best scammer believes his own pitch. And, you know, I think if you gave lie detector tests to, uh, you know, Christine Lagarde, um, I think absolutely all of these people believe in what they do. The... You know, sort of propaganda network that creates these people in the first place, it begins very, very young. Uh, as you go through any economics program, you know, if you're specializing in monetary economics, it, it is relentless propaganda, uh, never ending. To the, you may, uh, nowadays, you may um, go through a, you know, monetary economics PhD, and you might hear of Mises or Rothbard at some point, um, but you know, you'll, they'll say, ah, no, um, what is it? Uh, they're just theory. They don't, they don't have any data. You know, it's, it's, it's just, uh, just so stories. Um, it's very quickly dismissed. And, you know, if you talk to a lot of these economists, I mean, some of them even from very, very prestigious, uh, universities, uh, that they, they really have no theory. It, it is absolutely striking. Uh, modern PhD economists, the vast majority are statisticians, they're very good at statistics. Uh, if you are optimizing your uh, factory <laughs> operations, you should absolutely hire somebody from the ECB. Uh, very good at statistics. They have no idea uh, how an economy works, uh, theory, uh, sort of these big pictures. You know, uh, if you print money, where exactly does it come from? <laughs> they, 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 they really don't know. That would mean that on the other side, and this is how we get to Bitcoin, they also really do not get, they really don't understand what's going on with Bitcoin, right? They don't, correct. Yeah. Yeah, and 
Bitcoin, I think, is fascinating because it was intentionally designed to mimic the economics of gold. And it does that really to, to quite an amazing degree. Uh, so you have you know, very slow, uh, very predictable uh, supply growth, uh, you know, which is really gold's key feature. So gold, over a period of centuries, gold has grown at fairly uniformly uh, 1% to 2%. And that's been through many, many different technology regimes. You know, so gold before the Industrial Revolution and gold after the Industrial Revolution, it's quite striking. It's grown at about the same rate. You did have one big inflationary jump in gold re over the past thousand years, which was uh, the Americas, right? There were some regions of Americas, and of course they had different technologies, so they had not exploited their gold reserves to the same degree that Spanish technology was able to. Uh, but broadly speaking, gold has been, you know, really impressively stable in its supply growth, and that makes it an excellent money. Uh, Bitcoin sort of takes that as inspiration, and then it improves on it. Uh, it has yet uh, better uh, supply characteristics, and most important, I think, Bitcoin has two features uh, that gold lacks, uh, which are that it it cannot be controlled by the government. Okay. Uh, sort of the key flaw, I think, in gold, uh, you know, if you're advocating gold as a money, then sort of the standard response might be, well, if gold is so amazing, why aren't any countries using it, right? Why has the evolutionary process eliminated gold, apparently, in favor of fiat? And I think the reason is that the elimination of gold had nothing to do with gold's suitability as a money. It had to do with gold's vulnerability to governments. And it is incredibly profitable for governments to counterfeit currency, of course. Uh, and so, you know, gold is uniquely vulnerable because it is physical. So the fact that gold is physical means that it has to be centralized somewhere. Uh, you can only keep a small amount in your backyard. And if everybody is keeping gold in their backyard, then, of course, this <laughs> the, that system falls apart quickly. Uh, I would spend my weekends uh, exploring people's backyards. And so it has to be centralized at scale. And once it's centralized, it's extremely easy to find. And so governments indeed visit it and, uh, you know, to make sure, we just want to make sure everything's okay, fellas. And if there's a crisis, then of course gold knows who to, or uh, the government knows who to call. And this is why gold has, in the modern age, uh, is not used anywhere as a money. Uh, it is too vulnerable. It gets captured. Central banks, you know, keep some decorative gold so they can, um, you know, sort of uh, for uh, really, I think, branding purposes. Uh, but broadly speaking, gold has lost its value because it has been conquered by modern governments. And what sets Bitcoin apart is that Bitcoin cannot be conquered. You cannot seize it. Uh, it, it is indestructible to governments. You can chase individuals who you think are using it. Yes, of course. Uh, but you, you, you cannot destroy Bitcoin as a money always if you're attacking it. Then as soon as you stop attacking it, as soon as you stop arresting people for buying things in Bitcoin, it pops right back. So I think um, that's extremely impressive. And then, of course, the other feature that Bitcoin has compared to gold is that you can buy things over a distance. So gold in the modern economy is crippled, right? Think of how many transactions you make in a month that are hand-to-hand. -hand. Almost none. Right, um, you're you're buying on Amazon, your your rent payment or your electricity bill. Almost everything you buy is electronic. The quantity of your spending that is hand to hand is completely insignificant. Uh, and you know, in a pure gold system that is not relying on some intermediary that the government can control. Okay, in that pure system, therefore, it's, it, it it covers almost nothing. Uh, in contrast with Bitcoin, of course, you can transact anywhere worldwide. Uh, if you're using the Lightning Network, it's, it's uh, what, one-fortieth of a U.S. penny. It costs nothing. It is um, substantially cheaper than using even the fiat system, where there's, there's fees built in multiple layers. Uh, so it is, it is better than fiat in every respect. It is better than gold in every respect. Uh, I think it's inevitable. The only caveat is that, of course, it will take time, right? People have to learn about Bitcoin. It is not an easy topic to learn. It's not something that you read a, you, you know, you watch a, <laughs> you know, 20 minute video and, and you feel, oh, good. Okay, I understand it. Gold is easy to understand, right? Gold is very intuitive for people. 
Uh, Bitcoin obviously is not. And so it will take time. Uh, some of it has to do with age. Uh, Bitcoin comprehension tends to correlate with age. Older people do have more trouble with it. Uh, so, you know, Bitcoin may take another generation or two. And of course, in my dream world, we get rid of fiat tomorrow, we go to gold. And then, uh, you know, gold and Bitcoin coexist peacefully because gold doesn't invade and conquer other currencies. Uh, and, you know, people, most people initially use gold and then gradually over time they, they shift to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is an inherently superior currency. But like you said, we we can't really use gold. I mean, I love gold, no question. But yeah, but, exactly. but even even if all my if all my um, my shopping would be done hand to hand, right? If all my transactions were hand to hand, I could still not do it with gold because the smallest gold coin is still too big to do this. In in right, yeah, and if, yeah, well, and 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 that's why I was saying, uh, why I was saying a moment ago that my ideal world would be, in other words, if for some reason something changed. Right, so the implication being governments have to accept this. If it's to be gold, governments must accept it. Government, uh, gold has to ask for permission. Right, traditionally throughout history, governments do go to gold. They go to gold when they have failed so spectacularly that nobody trusts them anymore. And so, you know, they grab gold um, in order to bolster confidence. So there are scenarios where governments go to gold. Uh, Putin, for example, flirted with gold recently. Uh, after his war, but broadly speaking, gold is going to ha need a government sponsor. Right, you that, can't do gold on your own. Right, that's why they that's why they they keep it in 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 the vaults. Right, that's why they keep it in the exactly. central banks in order to have a fallback option. Because because not doing mm -hmm. this would mean that they would lose the power. But what you're right. saying, and this is interesting, what you're saying, and it also, by the way, I mean, it took me. A, Ages. I don't know how long how, how yep. long it took you to, to get Bitcoin. How long did it take you? <laughs> Honestly, it was very, it was uh, it was very fast. Uh, I loved it um, from the beginning, and I think it is because before I met Bitcoin, I had already accepted that a fixed supply is better, and that it doesn't matter what it's based on. So in my mind, the metaphor was. Uh, let's say that um, you had, I don't know, an original copy. I don't want to use the Bible, so I'll use some other book. Uh, <laughs> what's a famous book? Okay, the original copy of uh, Charles Dickinson's <laughs> The Night Before Christmas, okay? And you, you cut out each letter, and each letter you designate a token, and then you say, okay, this shall be the currency. And let's say that for some reason, people very strongly are willing to accept that only a first edition of you know a Christmas um, uh, book will represent currency, then that would be a fine currency. It would cost you nothing, almost nothing to produce. Um, and so I'd, I'd always, or I'd already kind of had this inchoate idea that um, it would be cool to do some kind of currency, you know, where for some reason everybody accepted that something was going to be limited and then we would just use that limited thing. And so when I came across Bitcoin, which was an instantiation of that, but of course, many orders of magnitude more clever than anything I could think of. Uh, I mean, it was love at first sight. So you said it was inevitable. Um, what does that even mean? What, what does that mean? I mean, you, it says on your, on your Twitter bio, you're pushing for hyper-Bitcoinization. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> I mean, how, how, how do you think this is going to work? Do you really think, basically, do you think that, you know, this, this, monstrosity of central banking that was built up over the last four centuries, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be replaced by a computer, you know, by, by some code that a guy, that a guy who don't even know who it was just, just cobbled together. I mean, I think it's brilliant. No, don't get me wrong. I and I hope, I hope you're right. I'm just saying, how does this happen in your mind? Yeah. So I, I think you have two paths. Uh, you have the, the easy way and the hard way. Uh, the easy way is that Bitcoin continues doing what it's doing, which is educating, orange-pilling, person by person, one by one by one. And uh, fiat keeps doing whatever it's doing. And after 30 or 50 years, we have enough people who understand Bitcoin, who are accustomed to using it, that you have a tipping point where a significant number of people use Bitcoin. All right, so that's the easy way. Uh, and then we have the hard way. And there's two ways that are in the hard way. Uh, one is that governments fight it, and which is almost certainly going to happen. Uh, if 
you know, currently they laugh at it or they ignore it. If Bitcoin is starting to take a large share of currency demand, then I think governments will fight it. Uh, they will ban it. They will go after the banking system. Uh, they will be completely successful in rich countries in preventing institutions from using Bitcoin uh, because rich countries can pass laws and they're actually obeyed. Uh, there are many countries that cannot pass laws and have them obeyed, places like Cambodia or countries in Africa. Uh, so it will continue underground there even if it is banned. Of course, it will continue underground in places like uh, Austria or the U.S. Uh, because not everybody obeys laws. This is why people smoke marijuana. <laughs> um, but it will be you know, relatively atrophied in terms of interaction with the financial system. Uh, at any rate, I think we'll sort of go through these cycles where it will get banned for a while. They'll sort of relax the ban because they'll be paying attention to something else, and it'll slowly grow, and then they'll come around and try to ban it again. I think it'll actually look a lot like drug prohibition, where you sort of have these cycles uh, where you know they try to ban it a little bit harder, and then they don't really care that much, and then they care again. Uh, and then you've got the other, the, the hard, hard way, the hard, catastrophic way, uh, which is where fiat screws up so badly that people reach for something else. If that happens in the next 20 years, then people will uh, almost certainly reach for gold. Uh, if that happens in 40 or 50 years, then I think at that point we have enough people who understand Bitcoin that that's the direction they go. I'm honestly not convinced that if it happens in the next 20 years, people will, will go to gold, to be honest. What because, do you think they'll... Well, I think that they yeah. will go to Bitcoin very quickly. Because if, really? at this rate, you know... At Christmas, when the family comes together, everybody has at least one, you know, crazy Bitcoin guy who can't stop talking about Bitcoin, right? And if your your currency collapses in hyperinflation, you know, that guy will be in high demand and you'll just... <laughs> yes, he will. And, and you can well, learn it, it rather quickly. <laughs> he'll also have much higher status because he'll be the richest guy anybody knows. <laughs> he won't pick up the phone. Maybe that's how, that's why, <laughs> Maybe that's why it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, no, um, you know, I actually like your thesis. So I like your thesis better. So there we go. Well, we, we've seen you know, Bitcoin used by Ukrainians fleeing from, from yes, we uh, to Western Europe. We've seen Bitcoin being used in Africa. We've seen being used in Lebanon. And this is what I do with this podcast as well. I try to get voices from all over the world. And I see, I mean, it, it, I did one, one, one show with, with, uh, with Mary from Nigeria, and she told me that there is, you know, Bitcoin is banned in Nigeria, basically, and Bitcoin is banned in China, but Nigerian companies are actually paying Chinese exporters in Bitcoin. Wow. Because, That's the capital, great. because the capital controls don't allow them to do any business otherwise, and they're just doing it, and the Chinese don't care. Um, but yeah. so, so I think it could, it could go quicker, but, but we'll see about that. Um, one question at the end, maybe, because we started with, you know, the situation of the dollar in the U.S. I mean, the, the United States of America is the perfect country to adopt Bitcoin. It's, 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 yeah. it's literally the, the only like, big country that actually could stomach it, even like from the people as well, because you need people who are entrepreneurial, who believe in free markets, who believe in, 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 the, in the, the, the right of the individual, right? And you have all these yeah. things in place. So basically what I'm like, how high is your hope that the U.S. is going to be the ones who just, you know, let it happen? Yeah, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, I think that um, among rich countries, Americans are almost unique in their, uh, their hostility to the state, their celebration of the individual, uh, their skepticism towards, you know, sort of um, official uh, information, official rules, dictates. Uh, I think they're quite impressive in that sense. Of course, on the other hand, the United States government is also uniquely capable. It has immense budgets. Uh, you know, if we look at the pro-Trump protests uh, a couple of years ago, uh, few countries can marshal that kind of police state to round up protesters, uh, not even Canada. So <laughs> I think the U.S. government, in a sense, is it's the strongest... Um, uh, <laughs> resistance <laughs> uh, to change simply because the government is so uh, has so many resources. Now, of course, that having a lot of resources doesn't make a government smarter. Uh, you could argue it actually makes it dumber. It's trying to do too many things, and it, and you know it it doesn't do anything well. Uh, so it is entirely possible that the U.S. government uh, looks impressive, but that size actually becomes a handicap, and so you know. 
we, we see, for example, if we look at regulation of the Bitcoin space, Europe has actually moved much faster, which should be surprising because Europe is intentionally a cacophony of many different decision makers. And yet Europe has managed to put together a coherent regulation of Bitcoin for better or for worse of the cryptocurrency space, whereas the United States is still lost and confused. And I think in a sense, um, because of its size, the U.S. government is almost more chaotic and less able uh, to respond to any kinds of challenges. So, but that, so that, that's, you're sending me off with some hope here. Is that, that what you're saying? That oh, yeah, 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 I think definitely. Uh, I would take hope from the people and I would take 50-50 from the government. It's big. But big might make it weak. It's a bit like if you're a startup and you're competing with a very large company. Uh, I, you know, I remember there was a story about startups. Uh, I think it was actually PayPal, maybe in zero to one with uh, Peter Thiel. But, uh, you know, they were talking about how they were kind of waiting for the big companies to crush them because they knew that any big internet company could copy their product overnight and crush them. And they kept waiting and they kept figuring, you know, we, we have to sell the company really quick before somebody kills us and nobody ever killed them. And they were surprised, but the reason of course, is that the larger an organization is, the stupider it gets. Well, that would, that would really be helpful with central banks and, and Bitcoin. I mean, yeah, I mean absolutely. You, you see this already, they, they really do not know what to do with it. But I do see, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe it's maybe I'm wrong, but because you're saying that the Europeans are ahead with the regulation. Well, we do have regulation, but it hasn't been passed yet. And it doesn't differentiate between Bitcoin and other crypto assets. While right. the SEC yeah. seems to have this differentiation between uh, Bitcoin as a commodity and everything else as a security, which I think is a lot smarter. I like that particular rule, um, but I still think on a sort of meta level that the level of coordination uh, in the U.S. is strikingly bad, um, given that the regulatory authority is concentrated uh, at the federal level. I think it's striking how badly they coordinate with each other. Uh, on the specific question of you know Bitcoin-facing regulations that exist today, uh, yes, the, the SEC, I think that has more to do with the specific opinion of the current SEC chief. Uh, either he's pro-Bitcoin or he's cynically dividing the community and killing the weak first uh, because the crypto community tends to be pretty useless politically. They're not committed. They're essentially day traders, whereas the Bitcoin community is very, very committed. So I don't know yet whether um, it's sort of a cynical ploy on the SEC chair's part. Gary Gensler, um, or whether he genuinely is willing to countenance um, Bitcoin. I think also a distinction to make there is that, in a sense, every regulator wants things to be whatever they regulate. Okay, um, you know, so for example, in the U.S., the CFTC, which regulates commodities, uh, for a long time considered Bitcoin a commodity. And the SEC, which regulates securities, considered it a security. And then the OCC, which regulates uh, 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 currencies, regard, or I'm sorry, the, the, the Federal Reserve, regarded as a currency. And so essentially every regulator, when they see something new, they say, oh, that's mine. And of course, the reason they do that is because you can increase your budget. Right. And so, you know, in Gary Gensler's case, is his stance towards Bitcoin because he's actually enlightened and he recognizes the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum? Or is it simply that he sees an opportunity for his organization to uh, take territory in the you know, non-Bitcoin crypto space? And in order to take that territory, he wants to make it very clear that he's not attacking this much larger and much um, uh, more active community of Bitcoiners. He's basically saying, I can't take your territory, so I want to make sure you know I'm not attacking you. And, you know, this, this would be a clever way to do it uh, if his goal was to seize territory from other regulators, uh, such as the, uh, the CFTC, that might otherwise try to regulate crypto. So the point I'm getting is that um, I don't know that it's smart per se. Uh, I think it may just be palace games from uh, regulators. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Yes, because you've seen recently, you've seen the CFTC saying, um, we are, you know, the SEC can have all the cryptos besides Bitcoin, Ethereum and Litecoin. 
So they think that these three are commodities, right? Um, I honestly, personally, I believe Gary Gensler. I believe he, he gets it. I really do. Um, because he's, and you know, the thing is because he's never, like there's never been a mistake from him, right? He's saying things that you could hear on some hardcore Bitcoin maximalist podcast, right? Almost like he's listening to the hardcore Bitcoin maximalist podcast. Um, okay. Okay. I, I, I'm willing to give him uh, the benefit of the doubt. I would be thrilled if he were actually a Bitcoiner. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I, I don't know, but maybe, maybe. We'll see. Yeah. Well, Peter. Yeah, um, definitely. Peter, this has been absolutely great. This has been very interesting. Thank you for taking the time. I think we of should course. do this. I think we should do this again because we'll get chances you know, to talk about the peop things happening, right? Um, could you give us a send-off? So where do we find you? Where, where do we follow you? Where do we subscribe to your stuff? Okay, I'm at uh, Twitter at Prof Stange, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. Uh, also at YouTube under the same. Uh, and then I have a Substack, uh, which is stange.substack.com. So that's S-T-O-N-G-E. Uh, so visit me there. They all link to each other. And I've got videos coming out every day. So uh, hopefully you'll tune in. How long are you going to stick with videos every day? Forever, Justine, forever. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Have a, have a good day all over right. in Florida. Thank you. content and articles like this, go to fixthemoney.net.